This past week, I came across a really interesting article. Uh, I was reading World Magazine, and uh, in this month's issue of World Magazine, they had a fascinating article titled, Finding Life in a Life Sentence. Finding Life in a Life Sentence. Serial killer David Berkowitz tries to finish well in a circumstance that drives many to despair. You may be familiar with the name David Berkowitz, more infamously known as the Son of Sam. During 1966 and 1967, David Berkowitz terrorized the city of New York, going on a killing rampage where uh, over the course of that year he killed six people and attempting to kill more, he uh, injured over uh, 13 people total and had the whole city of New York living in fear over those two years. David Berkowitz went by the name the Son of Sam. That was a moniker he gave himself in some of his letters taunting the police trying to capture him. The name Son of Sam he took from the name of a demon that he worshipped as part of a satanic cult, a demon named Sam Haim, who was a, a druidic demon. And David Berkowitz was so caught up in the darkness that he literally pledged his allegiance, calling himself the son of Sam, the son of this demon, a, a servant of Satan. Well, fortunately, the police caught Berkowitz and put an end to his killing spree, and he's today spending uh, uh, his life in prison. He was sentenced to over 300 years in prison. But amazingly, a few short years after entering prison, David Berkowitz was befriended by another inmate who was a follower of Jesus. And this inmate encouraged David Berkowitz that even he, as evil and twisted as he had become, could be redeemed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. David Berkowitz in this article tells the story of how this friend encouraged him to read through the book of Psalms. And, and he came across one of David's Psalms where David, in his sin, cries out to the Lord and says, This desperate man pleads for mercy. And David Berkowitz said he resonated with that prayer. And there in his prison cell, he knelt at the foot of his bed and he said, I just weeped and weeped for hours, confessing my sins and calling on Jesus to forgive me. It's really fascinating reading this article. Today, the man who was once known as the son of Sam is now known as the son of hope. Prisoners in the prison look to him as, as, as pastor. He doesn't like that title because he, he never was formally trained as a pastor, but he spends his days now in prison praying for his fellow inmates, serving with the prison chaplains to, to share the gospel and the hope of Jesus with other prisoners. And, and you think about this and you think, how could a man like this be so radically changed? Well, friends, this is what the grace and love of Jesus Christ does in a person's life. We, we think about a serial killer like David Berkowitz, and, and, and in our humanness, we think, this guy's too wicked, he's too evil. But see, that's why God's grace is so amazing, because God takes people who don't deserve it. And none of us, friends, deserve God's grace and mercy. We all fall short of God's holiness. But God, in his amazing grace, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he can forgive us, he can cleanse us, he can wash us white as snow and make us a new creation. And David Berkowitz, Berkowitz has experienced that reality in his life. Not only has he experienced the power of his salvation in Christ, but he's experienced the ongoing work of God's sanctification in his life. 
This morning we're going to be talking about the topic of sanctification, the, the Christian's ongoing growth in conformity to Christ's likeness. Pastor Eugene Peterson uh, defines sanctification as a long obedience in the same direction. And friends, that's what we're called to as followers of Jesus. We are called to faithfully pursue him, to faithfully follow after him throughout our lives, increasingly growing more and more into Christ's likeness. That's what sanctification is all about. It's a long obedience. We don't always get it right. We're going to stumble and fall. We're going to make mistakes along the way. But we continue to walk facing our master in pursuit of him, desiring to honor him and to grow in him. And so today, as we turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, we're going to find the Apostle Paul encouraging his friends in the church in Philippi. Again, a church he planted in northeastern Greece. He's going to encourage these Philippian Christians to embrace this long obedience, this journey of sanctification. And as we look at his encouragements to the Philippians, we too are going to be encouraged to embrace this life of long obedience, a life where we are increasingly growing in conformity with our master, Jesus Christ, and experiencing his ongoing transformation in our lives. And Paul, as we're going to see today, he's going to tell us that this kind of life is a life that shines, a life that shines brilliantly in the darkness of our world, caught up in sin, caught up in the pursuit of false idols, looking for hope in all the wrong places. Paul says, as we shine as followers of Jesus, we can make an impact in the world. Now, friends, Paul has been leading us to this theme for the past three weeks. If you think back on what we've looked at in the book of Philippians recently, three weeks ago in Philippians one twenty one, the Apostle Paul told his friends that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. There's no greater joy or purpose in life than to live for Jesus. And then two weeks ago, we saw in Philippians one twenty seven, Paul told his friends, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? He went on to explain to to be people who who are living in unity, who are committed to self-sacrificial love and service of one another. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Then last week we saw in Philippians 2.5, he said to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, embrace the same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus had. And then he highlighted this beautiful example of Christ, the the self-sacrificial love, the humility of Christ. Paul says, be like Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let his mindset be your guide as you seek to live in, in unity and service of one another. And now today, Paul's going to hammer home for us this vision of the life that is increasingly growing in conformity with Jesus. But more than just giving us a vision for the life of sanctification, Paul is going to lay out for us the steps. He's going to help us understand how this growth takes place. And along with the steps, he's going to highlight for us some of the practical signs that we can look for to mark our growth in Christ. How are we going to know if we're growing in Christ? Well, well, Paul's going to highlight some of those signs for us today. So I want to read for us today Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Paul's just excellent teaching here on this idea of sanctification. 
And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this. And what does it look like for a Christian to be growing in sanctification? What does our sanctification entail? Let me read for us. You can follow along on the screens or in your own Bible, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison in Rome, okay? He's not there with them. He's encouraging them, continue to live in obedience, even in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here, Paul gives us this this beautiful vision of, of the process, the act of sanctification, the ongoing growth in Christ that the Christian can experience. Paul reveals for us here that our sanctification entails three things. He's going to talk to us about about our work in sanctification. He's going to talk to us about God's work in our sanctification. And then he's going to reveal for us the the outwork of our sanctification, what that looks like. I I want us to look at each of these three things for for some time this morning. Number one, Paul tells us that, that our work is involved in our growth in Christ. Our work is involved in our sanctification. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever had uh, the Mormon missionaries come to your front door? Let me see a show of hands. All right, almost everybody in here, right? Uh, do you know the, the Mormon church? They have every neighborhood in America mapped out with the goal of having two or more of their missionaries visit every home in America at least once a year. That, that's, their, that's their organization's goal. And, uh, and the Mormon church, friends, is, is a non-Christian cult. They are a cult of biblical Christianity. Many people don't realize this, but, but I like to describe Mormonism as a Jesus plus religion. They're a Jesus plus religion. They'll come to you and they'll tell you that we believe in Jesus Christ and we have faith in Jesus Christ. But for the Mormons, their goal is not just putting faith in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus. In fact, all the non-Christian cults and every other false religion in the world are ultimately religions based on human works, human effort, human achievement. And it's no different for the Mormon church. A couple summers ago, I was at, ho- uh, at home at my mom's place in Eden Prairie uh, visiting my mom. And one afternoon, uh, a couple Mormon missionaries come walking through the neighborhood. Well, when I see the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses come through the neighborhood, one of the things I like to do is uh, I like to go door-to-door witnessing with these people. Well, as you can imagine, they don't really get too excited about that. I saw these Mormon missionaries coming down the street, so I walked down my mom's driveway to greet them, and we started having a conversation, and, and uh, they quickly found out that I was a Christian, and it soon became apparent that I knew more about their religion than they did, and, and so they kind of politely excused themselves and decided to walk away and go talk to my mom's neighbor next door. Well, I went and followed them down the street towards my mom's neighbor. They said, where are you going? 
I said, well, I'm going with you to talk to my neighbors. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're going door-to-door witnessing. I'm going to go with you. They said, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean I can't do that? This is my neighborhood. I grew up here. These are my friends, my neighbors. I can talk to them anytime I want. And they said, well, nobody does that. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to do that. And I'm going to go with you to every house in our neighborhood until you decide to leave our neighborhood because, you know, I'm not going to let you lead my friends and neighbors astray with your false religion. Well, these Mormon missionaries, after we talked for a while, they said to me, they said, well, why do you challenge our good works? Why do you challenge our good works? Don't you know that the Bible says faith without works is dead? Don't you know that the Apostle Paul tells us to work out our salvation? And as I said a moment ago, friends, Mormonism is a Jesus plus religion. They, they believe that they have to have faith in Jesus, but then they add to faith in Jesus, baptism in the Mormon church, good works, temple works in the Mormon temple, and then obedience to the laws and ordinances of the Mormon church. They, they add all of these rules and rituals and regulations and requirements on top of their belief in a Jesus who is not really the Jesus of the Bible. And I talked with these Mormon missionaries about what the Bible teaches about true salvation. True salvation comes by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And I pointed out for them something that's so important for us as Christians to understand this morning. The the Bible talks about three dimensions to our salvation. And it's not just the cults that get this wrong. See, what the Mormons do is they mistake justification for sanctification. And all false cults make the same mistake. In fact, many Christians and faithful Bible-believing churches make this same mistake. They confuse justification for sanctification. See, there are actually three dimensions to our salvation that the Bible talks about. There's our past salvation. This is what's known as justification. This is when we are made right in the eyes of a holy God by putting our trust in Jesus as the sufficient and full sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did all of that. Okay, Justification has nothing to do with us. Okay, We put our trust fully in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But then the Bible talks about our salvation in terms of sanctification. This is what we're talking about today. Paul encouraging us to work out our faith. What is sanctification? Sanctification is our lifelong obedience seeking to grow in conformity with our Lord and Savior, with our Master, Jesus. Okay, That's not about our salvation in terms of our standing before God. Jesus took care of that in justification. Sanctification is the outwork of that. And then ultimately, we're going to experience one day our future salvation, our glorification, where we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ in glory. We'll be fully free from these fallen sinful bodies, from from this fallen sinful experience in this world. And so we understand this past, this present, this future dimension to our salvation. I went on to share with these Mormon missionaries how the Apostle Paul clarifies this issue for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Friends, he's talking about justification there. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid the penalty. We do nothing to earn that. Okay, we trust in the free gift that Christ purchased for us on the cross. 
not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So friends, understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying we are justified freely by faith in Christ. It's not of our works. We don't do anything to deserve that or to earn that. That's justification. But God justifies us for the purpose of good works so that we can live out our faith in this world and thereby shine as lights in the midst of this dark world. This is what Paul means in our passage when he talks about work out your own salvation. Christians are called to work out what God has already worked in. Friends, isn't that cool? We work out what God has already worked in. The words work out here that Paul uses, <coughs> excuse me, are actually just one word in the Greek. The word Paul uses in the Greek is katergazomai. And, and katergazomai means to fully work to the point of finishing the job. The, the Romans and the Greeks use this word in reference to working a mine. All right, you discover a mine full of gold or precious minerals. What do you do? Friends, you work that mine completely. You work it thoroughly, getting out every last piece of precious metal, precious stone, precious mineral. And in the same way, Paul is calling us as Christians to mine the depths of our rich salvation. See, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, justification, right? When we come to faith in Christ, God deposits into our lives a treasure trove of rich blessings that are ours in Christ. And now he calls us to, to work that out, to mine those depths, to, to, to get out every last bit of that richness that is ours in our relationship with Jesus. Friends, this is what sanctification is all about. Okay, We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. The Christian life is not a passive thing, friends. Okay, We don't come to faith in Christ, and, and then that's the end. That's, that's, that's all we do. You know, let go and let God. Jesus, take the wheel. Friends, that's a great song, but it's horrible theology. We are called to actively work out our salvation, to labor, to exercise our faith in the goal of looking more and more like Jesus. Now Paul goes on and he says that our working out of our faith should be conducted in fear and trembling. Now friends, this is important. Why does Paul say that our sanctification should be done in fear and trembling? I mean, why does he use this serious language here? Well, friends, the reason Paul talks about our sanctification being worked out in fear and trembling is because he wants us to recognize that the walk of faith as a Christian is serious business. It's serious business. We shouldn't take it lightly. The Apostle James in his letter, James chapter 4, verse 6, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, think about what that means for a moment. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Understand this this morning, friends. If we don't humble ourselves before God, God will do the humbling for us. And that's a scary prospect. And so we need to faithfully work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
we, we hold a reverential humility towards the awesome and holy God we serve. But, but I want you to notice something else here, friends. This is important. Remember, this call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling comes right in the midst of a book which is all about joy in Christ. The whole theme of the book of Philippians is about joy in Christ. Well, fear and trembling, that doesn't sound very joyful, Jason. No, it is. You see, fear and trembling, working out your salvation and fear and trembling is actually the springboard to joy. You want to know real joy in life? Friends, real joy in life comes from reverentially serving our holy God from reverentially following in obedience the guidance of our holy God. That's where real joy in life is found. I want to ask you this morning, when you think about your life, would you say you're living a life of joy today? Would you say your life is abounding in joy? And if not, maybe it's time to take an honest assessment of your lifestyle. Maybe it's time to ask yourself, what am I doing to work out my salvation? And if the answer is not much, well, the good news for you this morning, friends, is it's never too late to start walking in obedience to Jesus and thereby discover the source of true joy in life, following our master. So Paul tells us our sanctification involves our work. But then he tells us, secondly, it's not just our work. It also entails God's work. Okay, God hasn't left you on your own in this. Paul goes on in Philippians 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, God works in you. Friends, that's good news. Now, now the word that Paul uses here for works in reference to God is a different word than what Paul used when he says to us, work out your salvation. Okay, two different words for work here, and this is important. See, with the work that we're being called to, God calls us to fully mine the depths of our salvation, to pursue Christ to the fullest. But the word for work that Paul uses when he says God works in you, the word for work here is enerieho. It might look familiar to you. It's where we get our English word for energy from, right? Excel enerieho. All right? And this kind of work speaks to active and efficient effort. It's the word where we get energy. It's in, in Paul, what he's saying here is that God both supplies the energy that we need for growing in Christ-likeness, while also at the same time actively applying that energy to us. So God supplies the energy and then actively works to apply that energy. Around the very same time Paul was writing these words to the Philippians, he wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus, which I read from earlier. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for his friends in Ephesus. Listen to what he prays for them. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, listen, this is what he prays for them, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes and your hearts enlightened, that you may know 
What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And, listen, his immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Friends, what is Paul saying to the church in Ephesus here? Paul is saying that when you trust in Jesus, God gives you an immeasurably great power. In fact, it's the same immeasurably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. And this resurrection power, this this dunamis in the Greek, which means explosive power, it's where we get our English word dynamite from. We have this explosive dynamic power within us from God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in you to help you continue to grow in your salvation. Friends, is this amazing or what? as we seek to honor the Lord in faithfulness and obedience, working out our salvation, we do so knowing that God is faithful in empowering us for this task. Paul says that God works our salvation in two ways here in the book of Philippians. He says, number one, he works it in our wills. Number two, he works it in our actions. He he works... Our salvation has supernatural power in our wills in that he actually transforms our thinking to make it more in line with his thinking. He changes our priorities. He changes our values. He changes our desires to will, Paul says. He changes your very will in order to pursue Christ. And then he works in our actions, Paul says, empowering us for godly living. We're not left on our own in this. I've been reading this past week a great book called Into Africa. It's the the epic adventure of Stanley and and Livingston. You may be familiar with those names. Dr. David Livingston was the famous missionary explorer of Africa. In the mid-1800s, Dr. David Livingston went missing for four four years. People didn't know where he was. He hadn't been heard of. He was lost in the middle of Africa somewhere. We didn't know. People didn't know if he was dead or alive. They didn't know if he had been captured by cannibals and eaten. No one had heard from from the world-famous explorer, Dr. Livingston. Search parties were sent out to look for him. One of these search parties was commissioned by a man named William James Bennett, who was the editor of the New York Herald newspaper. He sent an ambitious young reporter, Henry Morton Stanley, over to Africa on this epic adventure to find Dr. Livingston. And and Stanley was sent to Africa, and, and Bennett, the editor of the newspaper, promised him all the resources of his newspaper would be at his disposal. I would give you all the money you need. You'll have all the manpower you need. We will spare no expense. So Stanley traveled across the ocean to Africa. When he landed in Zanzibar off the coast of eastern Africa, he went to the American consulate expecting to be lavished with all these gifts and all this money from the New York Herald in order to purchase a caravan and supplies for his adventure to Africa. And what he discovered was the Herald had decided that we're not going to fund this adventure. He was on his own. No resources, no money to his name. He, he had to beg the American consulate to forward him $20,000 in order to purchase the supplies. He put it on himself. He took it upon himself to continue the search for Livingston, funding it on his own credit. 
Friends, how different is this from the way our God works? See, God not only calls us to the epic adventure of sanctification, but he also then empowers us. He doesn't leave us on our own. He supplies us the resources needed to carry on this growth in Christ. And this should be a great encouragement to you today, friends. When Jesus calls us to work out our salvation, he promises to supply the energy needed in order to do that. This is what Paul talked about earlier in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Other translations say we'll be faithful to bring it to completion. Friends, God's not going to leave you on your own. When you put your trust in Jesus, he will be faithful in empowering you to complete your journey of salvation. He'll give you the resources that you need. This is what God's amazing grace is all about. This is how a guy like the son of Sam goes from the son of Sam to the son of hope. This is how a guy like Jason Carlson, who once lived his life in rebellion against God, ultimately becomes a pastor proclaiming the grace of God. This is how a guy writing the letter to the Philippians goes from being a persecutor of Christians to the greatest champion of Jesus Christ in the history of the world. It's what God's amazing grace does, friends. He saves us and then gives us the energy to empower us to complete our task, growing in Christ-likeness. So we have our work, we have God's work. Thirdly, Paul tells us, what is the outwork? What is the outwork of our sanctification? How do we know that we're growing in Christ? Well, well, here at the end of our passage in verses 14 through 18, Paul gives us four signposts. He gives us four marks of, of what it means to grow in Christ. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here in these verses, Paul gives us four signs of, of what the Christian who is growing in Christ-likeness will look like. He says, number one, that the Christian growing in Christ-likeness will be a person who speaks life. They speak life. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, friends, that all things encompasses a lot in our life. All things means all things in all areas of your life. I don't want you to be people who are known as grumblers and disputers. Okay? Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Now, why is grumbling and disputing such a big deal as Christians? Well, friends, think about this. When you are known as a grumbler, a disputer, Grumblings, grumbling, disputing, it disrupts our unity as the body of Christ. Man, I have seen more churches split and divided by grumblers than I'd like to recall. Grumbling should have no place in the body of Christ. It disrupts our unity. It, it discredits our testimony. How does that look to the world around us, friends? When Christians are known more for their grumbling and disputing and for our testimony of life in Christ. 
Grumbling denies God's sovereignty. Friends, if you're a grumbler, what does that say? That says that you don't trust that God's plans and purposes for your life are faithful and good. The grumbler is the person who thinks that that God's always against them, that God gave them the short end of the stick. But when you trust in God's sovereignty and you know that he works all things for the good of those who love him, friends, rather than being grumblers, we should be thankful. No one likes a grumbler, friends. A grumbler is a discourager. God wants us to be encouragers. The second thing Paul highlights here, the second signpost of our sanctification, he says that a person growing in Christ's likeness will be a person who shines forth. Paul says, shine. Let your light shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, a quick, crooked and twisted generation. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we live in a world today lost in darkness, blinded in darkness, walking, stumbling in darkness. And Jesus says, look at, I don't want you to whine. I want you to shine. He wants us to people be people who shine our light, pure and blameless, blameless and innocent. Paul's not talking here about a sinless perfection, but he's talking about a life that should be characterized by integrity, free from accusation. In Ephesians 5, he says to the Ephesians, don't even let there be a hint of immorality among you. Why? Because when we live that way, pursuing obedience to Christ, living faithful in obedience to Christ, we will shine brightly standing out in the darkness of the world around us. Friends, you remember last weekend that full moon we saw? You remember the full moon last weekend? I mean, displaying this brilliant brightness in the midst of the darkness at night. Friends, that moon doesn't shine by its own power, does it? The moon reflects the brilliance of the sun, and we get the benefit of seeing the moonlight in the darkness. Friends, in the same way, God empowers us as his people to shine brightly in the midst of the darkness. Paul goes on, he says, number three, the, the person who's growing in Christ's likeness will be a person who spreads the word. Here he says, holding fast, holding fast to the word of life. The word holding fast here in the Greek is a peho. It means to hold firmly, but it also means to hold forth. Two connotations. So Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. Let the word of God, the word of life, be your source of encouragement and nourishment, but hold it forth, hold fast and hold forth that source of life so that others too can experience and enjoy it. And so a Christian is somebody who loves the word, but also shares the word. The fourth mark of a Christian growing in their walk of sanctification, Paul says, is there'll be a person who sacrifices with joy. Paul describes himself as a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice of the Philippians' lives and their offering. The the drink offering in the Old Testament was a supplemental offering that the priest would pour over the burnt offering. So as the lamb or bull was being sacrificed and burnt as an offering to the Lord, they would take the drink offering, which was a mixture of wine and olive oil, and they would pour the drink offering over the sacrificial offering. 
And that drink offering then would burn up as steam and emit a fragrant scent that would rise to the heavens, symbolizing God's pleasure with the sacrifice. Friends, Paul described himself as a drink offering being poured out over the Philippians offering. And he says, I rejoice in this. And likewise, you should rejoice in the offering of your sacrifice for Christ. Why? Because Paul knew that there is no greater joy in life than sacrificially living for Jesus. Friends, in two weeks from today, when we come back to Philippians, we're going to talk about the joy of sacrificial service for the Lord. We're going to hear a great faith story that morning about two people in our own church who have experienced the joy of sacrificially serving for the Lord. Paul is going to point to two of his brothers who sacrificially served on behalf of the church and encouraged him in his faith. See, Paul knew that there's no greater joy than sacrificially serving for the Lord. And so Paul says to the Philippians, look, I'm pouring out my life for you. You're sacrificing your life for one another and for me. And you know what? We should all rejoice in this. Because there's no greater joy than living for Jesus. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, when you look at your life today, are these four signposts evident in your life? When when others look at your life, do they see the outworking of your sanctification in these four realities? Is the evidence present there? And if not that might be an indication that there's a problem in your walk with the Lord today. Maybe you've allowed a root of bitterness against the Lord to spring up in your heart. Maybe pride is your issue. Maybe you've taken Jesus off the throne of your life and you've set yourself up as ruler and master of your own life, thinking you know better than God. Maybe complacency is your issue. Maybe you've just taken your eyes off of the prize of living for Christ and you're settling for lesser things. But friends, if you find your life not being demonstrated with these marks of sanctification, the solution is so brilliant and so easy. James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This isn't rocket science here, friends. God loves it when his children grow in conformity with Christ. And he empowers us for that growth. And when we will humble ourselves and confess our sins and draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's a promise you can bank on and count on and know that he will continue to empower you because, as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful teaching this morning on sanctification. And Lord Jesus, I just want to pray for my friends here this morning. I pray that those of us here at Lakes Free would be known as a people who shine brightly in the likeness of Jesus Christ in the midst of this dark world. I pray that we would be people who would be committed to living out our obedience to you and that we would experience your sanctifying power in our lives as you continue to work to complete our salvation. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation, but that you empower us to live out, to work out our salvation. 
God, make us more and more into those kinds of people who long to live in obedience to you and experience your power in our lives so that we might look more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we commit our lives to you. We give our lives to you. We humble ourselves before you today. I pray, God, that each and every one of us here, that that would be our heart's cry, and that in humbling ourselves before you, Lord, we would experience your amazing grace and power. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. If any of you would like prayer today, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here to pray for you. But let me leave you with these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's a great benediction for today. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. God bless you, friends. Amen.